Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, a Chicago public relations and marketing firm with legal PR practice areas covering family law, litigation, and intellectual property. Support for Law Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the like button on our social media pages. First, we have the Law Talk Radio Facebook page, and second, the ProServe PR Marketing page on Facebook as well. You'll find all of our social media links on these pages on our website, which is located at www.proservepr.com, and I'll spell that P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. From the Law Talk Radio page on our website, you can also listen to recent episodes on demand and find a link to the main Law Talk Radio channel on our host network where you'll find all of our shows going back to January 1st of 2010. While listening, please feel free to click around our site and read some blog articles on publicity and marketing materials and resources for law firms. Our show today is A Current History of Law and Litigation with Stephen Harper, Professionalism, Engagement, Civility, Business, Profit, greed, and justice. These are all words that you could overhear in a discussion regarding the legal profession today. Stephen Harper, a retired big law attorney, shares his insight and observations over a legal career that afforded him unique opportunities and perspective. Are we still on course in service? Or are we on close to the edge of big business and corporate greed? What would a lawyer like Stephen Harper tell his son, daughter, or neighbor's kid who wants to go to law school? These are all topics for our show today. Stephen Harper is an author, an attorney, and contributing editor to The American Lawyer, and an adjunct professor at Northwestern University's Law School and Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences. He graduated from Northwestern with a combined BA and MA in economics and Harvard Law School magna cum laude. A fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, he was a litigator at Kirkland and Ellis for 30 years before retiring in 2008. In addition to more than 75 articles, he has written three books. Number one, Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster's Story. Number two, The Partnership. And third, The Lawyer Bubble. Stephen is also the author of the award-winning blog, The Belly of the Beast, and you can find that at www.thebellyofthebeast.wordpress.com. Again, that's thebellyofthebeast.wordpress.com. Now, we do have a great show for you this afternoon, and callers are always welcome to dial in. Of course, we have a neutral and objective program. Your calls are welcome at area code 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. That telephone number, again, is 917-889-9732. Again, option 1 for the caller queue. want to let you know that by way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with attorneys and guests on our shows do not constitute or give rise to attorney-client relationships, and if you have any questions, you should consult with an attorney in your area. Finally, all callers remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. All right, some of the topics we're going to cover today, we're going to talk about in our first segment, of course, is a one-hour show. We have four segments. Segment number one is law school and the lawyer bubble. Second segment is growing lawyer dissatisfaction. Third segment is big law firm trends that make things worse. And our fourth segment is recent news about big firms in trouble. 
So we are going to get going with uh, with a, wel- uh, a welcome. On this is uh, May first is Law Day, and I want to uh, welcome my guest Stephen Harper. Uh, thanks. How are you doing, Nick? I am doing well, and Stephen, I thank you so much for your time in being here today. Um, I first learned about you from the article that I saw in the Chicago Tribune. Um, Amit Sachdev uh, wrote an article about the uh, blog that you write. Um, Tell us real quickly, before we dive into our topics, uh, your path and how we came to be uh, talking today. Sure. Uh, one thing, one minor correction, the third of the books that you listed of mine actually comes out next year. It's called The Lawyer Bubble. We'll come back to the topics. Um, but I wanted to make sure people didn't go scrambling trying to find it because um, it's not out yet. Uh, April of 2013, it'll be com- come out from P- Perseus uh, Publishing in New York. Um, my path is, uh, is, is as you described, uh, although I suppose maybe it's a little uh, unique in some respects. Neither of my parents went to college. Um, uh, I, I'm the oldest of uh, four uh, children and uh, ultimately wound up through mostly through fortuitous events. I take very little credit for it um, in, in, in a very fortunate circumstance. Uh, Harvard made the ultimate mistake and let me in, and I quickly mailed in my security deposit so they couldn't take it back. <laughs> uh, I really did that. That's a true story. Uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife of 35 years, um, almost 35 years will uh, confirm that for you. But um, the um, um, and, I, and I've had a I've had a very charmed life. So I come at all this all these topics um, in a very from a very positive place, uh, in the sense that I'm not one of these sort of sour grapes people that that talks about you know how horrible everything is and how horrible things have been and and so forth. I I come at it from a positive place in the sense that I've I've watched things that are frankly. Um, uh, not very, not very pleasant to watch in terms of the transformation of the profession, and we'll come back to the topics uh, that you outlined in greater detail. But um, um, where, where would you like me to start? Why don't you go ahead and fire away, and I'd be happy to uh, to uh, take it however you want to take it. The, the Tribune article you you mentioned, uh, Lemit Sakhtev uh, did. Uh, I thought it was initially when somebody you know said it was the Sunday, April first, front page of the business section. I said, yeah, right, April Fools. Um, but uh, Amit is a very, very nice guy. He uh, he actually was very thorough in the article. He inter- interviewed me at length, and then he went and talked to people I didn't know he was going to talk to, and it culminated in, I guess you would say, my 15 minutes of fame uh, on April 1st in the in the Tribune article that, as you say, uh, led me to you. Um, and I'm happy to share. And I'm always happy to talk about this stuff because I think the profession has has some great things for it to it, and I think it has some real trouble trouble spots and uh, anything that I can do to help enlighten people, which is why I teach the undergraduate course at Northwestern that I teach on the legal profession, I'm, I'm delighted to do. So I'm, I'm very grateful to be talking to you. All right. Well, I am so grateful to have you uh, on the program as well. And the bubble is the first thing I want to start with. And I want to suggest that it is very easy to get in a bubble. Um, You know, myself, I worked in undergrad at Marquette and uh, ended up at the DA's office there and then got a job working for a solo family attorney. And that translated into more solo um, and small firm family things. And it's easy to get, you know, the more people you know, the more you get sort of in uh, in a bubble. And that happens uh, with different people. But let's talk about law school in the lawyer bubble, and uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Sure. There are two ways to think about the bubble. One is one is the way that you just described, which is that uh, very often we tend to get absorbed in our own little world. I don't know if you watch uh, the Bill Maher uh, show that's on Friday. He has, he has sort of an in, in, in the bu- bubble segment where he takes somebody that's so out of it 
in what they say that it bears so little context to the world or relationship right. to the world that they're obviously living in a bubble. That's one kind of bubble. When I think of the lawyer bubble and when I talk about the lawyer bubble, uh, that's the subject of the book that I'm now finishing, uh, I have in mind something that people have been talking about for a while, um, uh, but I, I think it sort of gets, uh, sometimes the focus gets lost. Uh, and that is the, the just the simple fact that we have so so more many lawyers uh, and people coming out of law schools and even positions in law school um, for people who want to be lawyers, then we have uh, jobs available that it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, it isn't, it almost, it is tragic. I mean, I'll, give you, I'll just give you two statistics that kind of tell the story. Um, most recently, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, US, Depart- U.S. Department of Labor Bureau of Labor Statistics estimated that for the entire decade, that was that would end in 2020. There would be a grand total of approximately 74,000 net new legal jobs in the United States. Uh, well, every year law schools turn out 50,000 new lawyers. So you've got essentially in a year and a half, one way to look at it, uh, enough lawyers to cover an entire decade. And so, you know, the difficulty is you have all of these people swamping into law schools. Uh, for a lot of different reasons that we can and should talk about. Um, some of it relates to, to student perceptions. Some of it relates to media images and popular beliefs. And some of it relates to what I just think is the, the malfeasance of, or at the very minimum, the abdication of law school deans of their of a duty that they should be upholding to their to their prospective students who become their their actual students and who then become their graduates. But the long and the short of it is that when I think of the law, the law, the law, lawyer bubble as such, I think of essentially a a massive oversupply, coupled with the other really important dimension of the bubble, uh, which is that average law student today comes out of law school with more than one hundred thousand dollars of law school educational debt. Uh, that's a stunning number, and and you start to put that together. With the fact, with with the shortage of jobs available for them to begin to to repay that debt, and it's no wonder that you're looking at a, a world. You know, one of the Occupy Wall Street movement themes has been there's a that there's a one trillion dollars of educational debt in the United States today. Uh, that exceeds the amount of consumer debt on credit cards. Uh, what's going to happen to all that stuff? Where is it all going to go? There are people. There was an article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. And somebody who looks at this stuff very closely made the comment that's exactly correct. There are going to be people who are still paying off their student loans while their ki- when their kids are applying to colleges. So this is a it's an enormous problem, um, and, and as I say, the reasons for it and the sources for it um, are complex and many. But um, it's it, that's what I think of when I think of a bubble. It's it's a really interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon to see, um, and I've written uh, a little bit on responses to some of the articles that we see that ask the question, should you go to law school, should you not go to law school, is legal education worth it? Um, it seems difficult to, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Do you make the LSAT harder? Do you make admissions requirements more stringent? Um, do you make people go through uh, sort of a reality check course before they get in? Um, it's really – I remember when I was uh, applying to law school, and I had judges and lawyers in my family and followed the family. You know, follow, I followed the footsteps. 
Um, you know, I didn't give so much thought of it. And as it turned out, I'm quite happy not practicing law and working in media, media relations, journalism, and publishing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's tough to tell. And people told me, don't, you know, I don't know why you're going to law school. You know, I would have done something else. One guy even told me if I would have had my, a better head on my shoulders, I would have become a letter carrier for the U.S. Postal Service because they get really good benefits, a great pension, and great exercise. But, of course, there wasn't a person who was going to tell me otherwise. You know, what do yep. you tell some of these people who say, I want to go to law school because I watch The Good Wife, and that's a really cool show, and I want a yep. big fancy house and all this. I mean, the reality is there are people out there who are, and a lot of the solo attorneys out there are struggling and, you know, happy if they can make a teacher's salary. Right. Well, the answer to your question is, you know, what do you do about it, is you do a couple of things. One is... Um, you, you, you lift the cloud um, of misperception that hangs over the entire profession, and this sort of this sort of actually uh, spills over into the second topic, which is growing lawyer dissatisfaction. But but the truth of it is, uh, what you said about people telling you not to go to law school is not at all unique. In the most recent ABA survey, which was in 2007, lawyers who have been practicing of the lawyers who have been practicing more than 10 years, six out of 10 said that they affirmatively advise young people to not go to law school. Uh, six out of ten. That's, I mean, that's amazing. Well, um, but the disconnect is people have expectations, and I, this undergraduate course I teach, I've taught for the last five years, uh, is, is a continuing living example of it. You know, they have, uh, for, for a lot of people, you, you are not one of these, but for a lot of people, law school is a default position as sort of, well, I don't know what to do next, so I guess I'll do this. I'm not going to go to medical school, and, you know, people want me to be a professional or I want to be a professional, and law school has this aura associated with uh, with it of prestige and, and maybe even money or at least some financial security so that it becomes a kind of a default solution for people who can't decide what to do next. And so as a result, uh, if your expectations about what law school or a legal career are going to be like are framed as many as many are, on things like The Good Wife or Law and Order or, you know, go back a couple of decades and you'll, you'll hit uh, L.A. Law, go back a couple of decades more and you'll get Perry Mason. Um, mm-hmm. That becomes a prescription for disaster, but it gets people into law school. Uh, and, it, and it's the reason that applications still outpace the number of available spots. Um, the most recent round, there were 80,000 applications for 50,000 positions in law schools in the United States. So... Um, but what I think better better education, better awareness, better information, better knowledge, uh, as you said, you know, what do you, do you give people like a pre a pre law school co- course on what it really is going to mean? I think that'd be a great idea if you could figure out a way to do it. One way to do it, I mean, that's actually what I do in my legal studies class at Northwestern. I've done it for the last five years, and more of that I think would help a lot on a lot of these fronts. You know, it would be people out of law school just so they make better decisions about whether the fit makes sense. Here's an example of what of what would <laughs> what what was scared me straight, and I like the scare the scare them straight concept. Um, you know, kids who are getting their driver's license, show them pictures of car wrecks, show them the tales of you know my best friend was lost to a drunk driver. This, you know, how about let's put forth a few solo practitioners who got involved in plaintiff's litigation and got buried by some bigger firm, and we'll tell you how they lost their house 
how they lost half their practice, how they lost their friends, their wife, their spouse, and they're left, you know, uh, yes, they're a great attorney with, you know, holding the bag and, like, trying to figure out how they're going to keep their lights on. Um, right. you know, I think right. that if people could hear those stories firsthand, I've lived with some of these people. I've been there with some of these people, and it's just and, – and it's funny because the vendors – um, are always ca- calling these solo solo practitioners, especially in the suburb. I know actually suburbs or city, rural doesn't matter. Um, the the idea is that they have all the money and they're trying to sell them the first page of Google for a thousand dollars a month. These people can barely, you know, I don't want to say these people. That's a rude thing to say, but a lot of folks out right. there are having a hard time. Right. You know? So that's definitely true. Yeah, we're we're going to pause our first set of breaks here, and then we're going to come back and talk about growing lawyer, uh, growing lawyer dissatisfaction. But again, uh, true that seventy five thousand, you know, seventy four thousand net new applicant, you know, new attorneys per year. Uh, it's just, um, you know, it's a very staggering statistic. Anyways, uh, I want to tell everybody about an event that's coming up this summer. Um, I'm one of the speakers at this event and have agreed to try to get some Illinois lawyers interested and involved. Uh, what it is, it's the National Association of Legal Investigators, which is NALI. It's the 45th anniversary. Uh, it's the 45th anniversary conference. It's the National Summer Conference. It's going to be held um, June 7th through June 9th at the Chicago, uh, here in Chicago at the Hotel Avenue Crown Plaza. Um, again, it's the national conference to celebrate Nally's 45th anniversaries. Presenters at the event include Cynthia Hetherington, uh, myself, Nick Augustine, Andrea Lyon, Todd Thorne, Judd Stone, and representatives from Dynamic Safety and Reed and Associates. Attorneys are encouraged to attend this event, and as always, the presenters for this Nally conference are the best of the best in their fields, and you'll learn new information that you can take home and put to use immediately. The presentations are balanced with criminal, civil, and general litigation issues to best educate all attending Nally members and the attorneys who are learning more about working with Nally's certified investigators. Public defender colleagues, paralegals, and attorneys, again, are all encouraged to attend this event. And if you'd like more information, please direct your inquiries to the Office for NALI, which is the National Association for Legal Investigators, at area code 517-372-1500. Again, that's 517-372-1500. There's also information on the ProServe PR Facebook page. Uh, I was just provided with the PDFs for the speaker bios and the registration materials today, in fact, so uh, I dropped that on there. So, again, if you go to ProServePR.com, which is our website, you'll find a, a nice little Facebook uh, icon there, which you can click, and that will take you to our main uh, business Facebook fan page. So, now back to our program with Stephen Harper. We're now going to talk a little bit about growing lawyer dissatisfaction. Stephen, tell me your thoughts. Yeah, uh, let's pick up where we left off. The, um, as I mentioned, the Bureau of Labor Statistics thinks there are going to be 75,000 jobs total over the next decade through 2020, uh, and we're cranking out lawyers at the rate of 50,000 a year. So we're cranking out 500,000 lawyers for a net 75,000 jobs. You can you can add a little attrition in there, but you're still going to wind up with twice as many lawyers as there are pro- projected jobs for them. That's one piece of the dissatisfaction um, what I would call the dissatisfaction in the profession overall. The the, the troubling numbers are that the, the and, and they're growing is has to do with how lawyers feel about their jobs once they get them. Uh, and the answer is they're not very happy with them. Now there are differences, pretty big differences, depending upon whether you're talking about people who do public interest law versus uh, small firms versus large firms. The people who are, according to the ABA survey and others. Uh, 
pretty consistently, the surveys are pretty consistent on this, the people who are the happiest uh, and most satisfied with their careers are the people who are in public service, government kind of positions, small firms. The people who are the least happy are the people who are who are working in big firms where, of course, paradoxically, the money is the best. Um, hmm. and, and, and I think the reasons for that go back to what we were talking about a minute ago. What is it that drove people to law schools in the first place? And, and that is they had expectations. They had expectations based upon, you know, Alicia Florek's life in the, in the Good Wife or, or, um, or the guys in Law and Order that, you know, put the bad guys in jail and let, you know, make sure the good guys go free. Um, and then you come out of law school and one of a couple of things happen depending upon you and your, your preferences and your law school and a whole, a whole bunch of other, uh, factors. Number one, you may not get a job. Uh, the, the market now is, is, is terrible. Um, even coming out of very good law schools, uh, you know, the employment, people who are employed who have jobs that require a legal degree, uh, you know, those percentages are running somewhere around 50 to 60 percent. And those are even very good schools for, for which that's true. Um, so one problem is you may not get a job that even requires a legal degree. Another prob- problem has to do with uh, what I call the expectations reality gap, even for those who wind up in jobs um, that do require a legal degree. And uh, the, the problem there is that what you wind up doing bears absolutely no resemblance to whatever it is that you watch Le- or Alicia Florek do every Sunday night on, on CBS. Um and the good wife, you know, she's in she's in court. It's it's a, it, she has an amazing life, right? She's a third year associate. <laughs> she's been trying cases since her first day. Um, she's always got some you know very uh, unique, uh, sexy angle on some uh, controversial, high profile case, and um, you know on and on and on it goes. And and that just doesn't happen. It doesn't the- happen in in big firms certainly, and it doesn't happen almost anywhere really. I'll- I'll, let me interject. Uh, friends yep, that I know who do work at big firms, y- here's what I know. What I know is they'll work on, let's say, for example, they're working on software licensing agreements. They know how to everything about addendum number three, subparagraphs D through H, and that's it. Right. And right. they don't go to court. They don't get the client. They don't meet the client. They don't control the case. They are, you know, in a sense, pushing a button and reviewing and doing turns. They're very good at Microsoft Word and tracks changes. They are probably experts on <laughs> on that. But really, it, it's <laughs> right. not. It's. I mean, uh, some of my friends who worked at big firms are just. They've told me they're miserable. Like, and you know, they're like Nick. I feel like I work at a factory. I don't want to get up and go. And the the, the what I hear is, I'm just going to continue working and getting the good money and paying off my student loans so that I can go and go go to a smaller practice. But here's the problem: they don't know how to. If they go to start and they go out on their own, they don't know how to get a client. They don't know how to manage a case. They don't know the business aspect of it. Meanwhile, my solos can do everything from start to finish and can run circles around a lot of the big firm lawyers, but the solos can barely afford to put gas in their car to get to court. So I don't know right. what to do. Uh, yeah, right. No, you, you've, 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 been, you've captured uh, the essence of a, of a big element of the problem, and that is, you know, the, some of these, particularly, you know, if, we, if you want to talk about big firms, for example, you know, you take giant cases, you, you know, you, people wind up working on, you know, the, the third... Uh, the third toenail of the elephant, um, it, you know, rather, you, know, you have no sense of the whole. You have very little sense of the whole. You don't have a, 
you don't get the kind of investment that comes from dealing with a whole a whole client or or an entire problem. You know, I was this is what I say. I, you know, I was really lucky. I I was trying cases. I, I had my first two federal jury trials as a second year associate at Kirkland and Ellis, which was remarkable. I mean, it was a rare event that it, for me when it happened. Um, but there's nothing quite like that that's comparable um, in in what's going on in, in big firms today, and and that has to do with the topic that we'll get to in segment three, I suspect, which is the some of the trends that have made this worse. But the fundamental disconnect, I think, still is the problem of expectations versus reality. And bridging that gap, um, bridging that gap is, is, is really important because the wider that gap gets, the more it is that career satisfaction, for example, becomes simply a random event. I mean, if you don't have realistic expectations or if you even have no expectations about what being a lawyer is going to be, then what it actually turns out to be um, it, 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 it isn't going to fit whatever you thought. And, and when it doesn't fit, that's a prescription for psychological disaster. And, and I think if you, if you can better educate people at the front end of this stuff, not to talk them out of going to law, law school, not to talk them out of being lawyers, there are some great and noble things uh, that lawyers do and will always do and will always have to do. Um, you know, everybody hates lawyers till they need one um, mm-hmm. is sort of the old line. But and, and there are lots of great things that you can do with a law degree. I mean, look at look at you for example. You know, your 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 path took you in a, perhaps in a somewhat circuitous fashion to where you are today. But you would never have gotten there if you hadn't gone to law school at least in the first instance. Now, whether if you had been fully and you were and you were probably better prepared. You know the 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 statistics are the people who are children or offspring of uh, of lawyers tend to have far more satisfaction in the profession than those who aren't. And I think that just has to do with more realistic expectations about what it is the life of a lawyer really really involves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that that's where I sort of focus it because you know as far as I'm concerned, some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the next segment, which is big firm trends, for example, or big fir- or other or firms in trouble. I don't have any illusions that anything I say or do or write is ultimately going to have a, a particularly large impact on my fellow baby boomer generation of people that are running these shows. Um, but I can, I think, accomplish something positive for the generation coming in if all I can do is, in a, as I say, in a positive way, sort of just enlighten people about what it is, have them think about themselves and the path ahead before they just – you know, plop down the you know the equivalent of a home mortgage and come out at the end of the day with without a house uh, in order to get a legal degree, and that's okay to do if you're if you're happy with it. I came out with I didn't pay off all my student loans till I'd been out of law school five or six years, um, and they weren't as big as they are now that people have now. But you know, if it's right for you, it's the right thing to do. But but not knowing whether it's right for you is a really big problem, and and I think it is the that is the problem that I've now sort of spent the last. Uh, several years, and as I say, the book that I'm working on, uh, trying to to help address. So, you know, looking at some uh, some solutions, um, you know, what what advice would you give someone who is in year, you know, maybe a third year associate, and thinking, well, you know, by the third year, this should be happening, that should be happening. Um, if things aren't going the way they expected or thought. Do you, do you think it's best to talk to someone about finding a different, uh, maybe practice area or group in within the firm, or um, you, you know, know I, how, it, 
it's a really good question, and the answer is that there's no single answer that's going to fit everybody. So, for example, if I was if, if a third if a third year associate came to me and said, you know, I'm just miserable being a lawyer. I, I don't know what to do. I hate it. Um, and it also turned out that for whatever reason, that was somebody who didn't have any particular, you know, big financial albatross hanging around them like uh, like student loans. I'd say, well, then find something else to do with your life. You get one chance to do this. Um, on the other hand, if I was if it was somebody who was saying, you know, um, I've really got to make the money that I'm making at this firm for a couple more years so I can burn off my student loans, I'd probably say, tough it out and burn off your student loans, but don't put on the golden handcuffs. So when you get a raise or a bonus, you know, stick it in the bank or pay down your loans. Don't go buy a bigger house or a bigger car um, or whatever it is you might be tempted to do with it. Um, so, you know, there are different kinds of responses that I would give, but mostly what I would tell somebody to do is to just is to is to think about it. In other words, don't let the forces that are that are so endemic to lawyers, namely uh, inertia and momentum, just kind of carry you along a path so that at some point you just wind up and you, and you wake up someday when you're 40 or or, or 45 and you, or or younger even, and say, uh, how did I get here? And where did my life go? You know, think about it. If if you, you know, one of the one of the easy tests, if you're in a law firm, I think, or even in any practice situation, I think it works. Um, look or, look around at the people you're working with, uh, particularly the the senior people, and and ask yourself if they are leading the life that you would want to have. And if you're someplace where you can't find somebody who's leading the life that you would like, you can't find any place anybody in the place leading the life that you would like. Then you got to think about whether you're in the right place, but you got to think about it in the context of realistic problems. One of which may very well be uh, student loan debt that you really have to get rid of, because the related problem with all this, of course, is we've now jiggered the bankruptcy rules against uh, young people so that you can never get rid of student loans. They're not dischargeable in bankruptcy, so you you either pay them off or you die with them. Um, so anyway, that's what I would that'd be my advice, I think. Yeah, I really like that. If you can't find someone else who's living the life you want to have, <laughs> maybe it's time to keep out, you know, looking somewhere else. And you know, yeah. that's really it's really true. At the end of the day, um, and this I was in a discussion today. Yeah, you know, I had a discussion recently with someone. What's better, to be rich or to be famous? And it was kind of a you know an interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know. Either? At the end of the day, it's kind of an it's an interesting thing. Wealth and yeah. wealth can help open doors, and you can do things that you other wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But you know, again, if you're not happy with it, I mean, I've known so many people who have, you know, more money than they know what to do with, and they can't find joy in their lives, and they can't, you know, they feel it so, you know, under so much stress and such burden of life that it's it's, you know, it is it it can be money can be very much of a curse. Um, you know, I'll never forget growing up and having my little brother, who is uh, all of what you know, eight years old, come and say, "Did you see the Dow today? Is Dad going to be in a bad mood?" Uh, you know, it's just a, it's it's not a good way to live. You know, um, yeah. so again, like you have to find some good satisfaction, and um, you know, this this whole concept of growing lawyer dissatisfaction, I think, is going to be a recurring theme. And I wonder how many bar associations have done um, you know talks and panels on just these things. It, it is a point I want to bring up and mention. Um, a friend of mine, Dr. Leah Jackman Whitener, is a psychologist. Just in Columbus, Indiana. She's been on our program before, 
and she has a book called Confidence Book, and she primarily works with attorneys who are stressed out in their jobs and helps people decide if they should maybe choose another practice area or go a different direction. But Dr. Leah Jackman Whitener, she's on my Facebook page, anyone who's Facebook friends with me, and uh, Dr. Leah and Confidence Book, if you Google that, you can find her. She's a great resource for a lot of these topics. We're going to pause uh, for our second uh, break message, and then we're going to jump back and talk about big law firm trends that make things worse after this break. All right, I want to let everybody know that Clerk Dorothy Brown needs your help. Uh, Dorothy Brown was our guest uh, last week, and one of the things that we talked about was the upcoming expungement summit. They need volunteers, um, and the volunteers are going to earn 2.5 MCLE credits for participating in the 2012 expungement summit and training hosted by the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County and a host of all sorts of other people listed on this uh, advertisement here. And there are training sessions that are taking place on May 23rd and May 24th from 3 to 5.30. Again, May 23rd and May 24th from 3 p.m. till 5.30 p.m. at 69 West Washington on the 17th floor. At this training session, the attorneys will learn how to prepare an expungement so they can assist and advise members of the public with expungement and sealing applications for juvenile and adult misdemeanor and felony incidents that occurred in Cook County. So again, the scope here is uh, juvenile and adult misdemeanor and felony within Cook County. And the expungement summit is going to take place itself on Saturday, June 2nd at the Apostolic Church of God located at 6320 South Dorchester Avenue in the city of Chicago from 8.30 a.m. till 6.30 p.m. So again, June 2nd, 8.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Apostolic Church, 6320 South Dorchester. Now, for additional information, you can dial 312-603-5200 or 312-603-0467. You can also find the flyer for the Expungement Summit on the Clerk of the Circuit Court website located at www.cookcountyclerkofcourt.org. Again, cookcountyclerkofcourt.org. And uh, again, what they are doing is helping members of the public who, uh, it's the advertisement here says, bring your rap sheet and criminal history. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to help people prepare, where they, the attorneys will actually help people prepare the applications. Um, and then the people who want to have a matter expunged need to file that with the clerk of the circuit court. Um, it looks like they're, they're, uh, the information on the website has the breakdown of fees and everything. So, again, it's not that there are going to be hearings uh, held at this at this summit. It's just going to be um, you know, free legal advice and free lawyers helping members of the public prepare these applications so that they can file them. So um, a really good opportunity to grab some MCLE credits. I know that the uh, deadline's coming up soon. Um, so, again, May 23rd or May 23rd and 24th from 3 to, or 3 to 5.30 at 69 West Washington, 17th floor. And then the event itself with the public will be Saturday, June 2nd, 830 to 6. All right. All right. So that is the Expungement Summit. Go check it out. Um, all right. So back to our program with Stephen Harper. We're now going to talk about big law firm trends that make things worth. Steve, what's the word on the street? Sure. The, um, uh, let's pick up where you left off, the, the, which was this whole question of the relationship between money and happiness. You know, there's actually yeah. been some there's also been surveys on that. There's been a lot of research on it, actually. And the researchers have determined that the, uh, the break point, that is the point at which more money doesn't lead to greater uh, happiness in life, is uh, right around $75,000. And then at some higher number, I can't remember what it is, 
it does actually start to decline a bit. Now, I think for lawyers with big law school loans, they would say $75,000 is a little bit on the low side for, yeah. <laughs> for the happiness <laughs> break point, and, and they'd be right. Uh, but, it, but it illustrates the point, which is that the, the truth of the matter is, you know, if, you're, if the debate is between is it better to be uh, wealthy or famous, the, the, probably the right answer to that question is uh, neither of the above if what you're really looking for is, is something that's going to be satisfying in your life. Um, now, the problem with big law firms, if you, you, you know, this, all, of, all of these things relate to each other. Um, the problem that big law firms have, uh, lots of big law firms anyway, it's always dangerous to stereotype and generalize, but I would say the prevailing big law firm model has moved increasingly in the direction of what I would call corporatization um, uh, and away from model, models of collegiality and professionalisms. And, and the way that has happened is pretty straightforward, and it relates directly to the question of money. Um, the, 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 in big law firms, the, the model uh, emphasizes um, metrics that maximize short-term profits. Um, and the people who make out like bandits, of course, are the, are the, uh, the equity partners, particularly equity partners at the top. The difficulty is that the, the metrics that drive that are you know billings, billable hours, uh, and and leverage ratios. Leverage being how many non-equity partners are there for every equity partner, and the more you have, the more lucrative it is for the equity partner who, who's the owner of the firm. And and what makes all this problematic um, is that the way you the way you then drive the firm and the way you drive people in the firm is in the direction of those profit maximizing metrics. Well. In, in the in the prevailing model in big firms, the the key profitizing metric that you can drive is the hourly rate. You can drive it up, and it's billable hours, and you can drive it up. And the pro, and and of course, it won't surprise you. Where does that all take you? Well, as you drive up billable hours, you know, 30 years ago, the people that are now running these firms never heard never heard about. Um, uh, whether they had to meet minimum billable hours targets. Now there's hardly a firm in the in the in the country that doesn't admit on its or, or disclose on its NALP form, which is the, the sort of the, the the directory of law firms that law students use uh, to you know to invest, investigate firms and think about where to go to work. Um, they all have minimum billable hours requirements, and most of them are at 2,000 uh, a year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but to bill 2,000 hours a year as a minimum just means that in a lot of these places they're expecting much more and a billable hour is a lot different from a working hour. Yep. So all of that all of that is as you know I mean it, I mean I you know it's different for different people but if somebody tells you they're billing 40 hours a week they're probably working somewhere between 50 and 60 hours a week to do it 50 if they're really efficient and 60 maybe if they're less efficient but they're working they're at work and working a lot more uh than, than you might think from you know a 40-hour week billable uh, requirement. So all of that exacerbates all of this because you start eating away uh, at people's ability to do things other than bill hours to clients, and you're you're feeding right into the growing attorney dissatisfaction loop. Um, it's a it's a vicious it's a it's really a bad vicious circle. Hey, Steve, what about people who come in as first-year associates and there's no work for them to do? I heard one of our uh, big firms in town, actually, what they did was they took their first-year coming, their incoming first-year class and put them um, as in-house people at a client's 
location. Of course, the client ended up um, hiring many of them from the firm directly. But you know, the the alternative is what do you do? You you have your incoming class of first first year associates, and what what do you delay their entry, or you put them on hold, or do you bring them in, and there's no work to do? What have you seen? I yeah. mean, what do you? Yeah, what well, that's it. That's it. You're you're right. That's it. and that's a much different problem. That goes that goes to the shrinking market. Um, you know, there were something like. 5,000 5, jobs in big firms that have been that were lost uh, in 2009 and 2010, and I think last year they came back slightly, but they're still we're still something like 7,000 jobs below where we were back in two, 2007. That's just in big firms across the country, so um, it, it is a problem. And and the, the issue with those places, that is firms that are having, you know, first of all, if you don't have work, you don't you, you don't you shouldn't hire them. People who have who've already extended offers, uh, law firms that have already extended offers, and and w- and then went ahead and brought them in. I, I commend them because, frankly, what what some big some big firms did when the economy took a downdraft uh, in 2000, fall of 2008 and 2009, is they actually rescinded offers that they had made to people uh, who had relied on them on the assumption that they'd had jobs, and you know it was, it was a mess and yeah. really upended those people's lives. Because the the way the rules work, once you once you have an offer and accept it, you can't keep interviewing. So these people had no backup uh, when they found out, you know, from some firms that uh, oh gee, sorry. Now other firms did something a little more creative. They said, well, here's what we're going to do: we're going to pay you half, and we're going to send you to work in a nonprofit, you know, or in a public interest uh, kind of place for a year, on the hope that, that in a year the the market would come back, the demand would come back enough so they'd be hi- able to hire some lawyers or there'd be attrition, whatever. Uh, but it's a but but it's a daunting problem. So uh, I would say that the firms that brought people in who didn't have anything to do, but never, then nevertheless worked hard to find someplace else for them, whether it's with with a client or something else. I say I say my hats off to to, to them because that's 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 really an honorable way to go, uh, and much more honorable than than some firms did. Uh, obviously, there's nothing nothing worse for morale. Well, I suppose it's an interesting question. What's worse for morale? People who are working so hard that they're not, you know, they can't see straight, uh, or people who are sitting around and aren't working at all. Uh, probably the people are, if you have a bunch of people sitting around and not working at all, that's probably actually worse for morale than people who are working so hard that they can't see straight and they're sleeping in their offices. But neither is a place you'd want to be. Uh, no. Um, right? So, um, and, and, you know, the irony, of course, is, you know, in other areas of life, you know, clients and frankly, even the society wouldn't tolerate some of the the, the, the long hours that results from driving this me- this billable hours metric. Um, for example, if you're an over the road driver and you you drive for uh, uh, you know whatever it is, 40 consecutive hours, I think it is, or 50 consecutive hours, uh, you have to take that is, if you're on duty for that period of time, you have to take um, I think it's three days off, uh, no work. You know, well. You know, lawyers would look at that and say, "Well, this is a joke. I could never comply with that." Well, you know, what's the greater danger to society? Some guy who's driving a big truck, or some lawyer that's going to commit malpractice uh, in a way that's going to do who knows what kind of damage because he's fatigued, or at a minimum, he's not as productive. I guess that's really the point. Well, at a minimum, you get to you get to hour three thousand in the year. I don't care who you are; you're just not as productive as you were at hour two thousand. Let's 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 shift gears. Let's now talk about um, the AMLAW rankings, and let's talk about the big corporate, uh, you know, the big corporate accounts. And you know, let's say let's you know, Boeing moves to Chicago. Like when that happened, I'm sure you know, I don't know, did they? You know, someone got their business, 
and um, you know different firms are all pitching for that, and everyone's going to look at the numbers and the reports and the law. And what, what do you do? Do you have um, you know financial chaos and potential risk to your own firm, or do you you know try to keep the house looking in good order for other people? You know, it's sort of like showing a house, and then someone wants to go in the dining room, and they say, "Oh no, I don't want you to go in there." You know, <laughs> what's wrong the with the dining room? Yeah, stay out of the basement. It leaks. Um, well, the, the AMLA is a particularly poignant example because a lot of the behavior that you see and have seen over the last uh, 20 years that, have, that account for this transformation into what I call the corporatization of, of big law firms in particular is a direct outgrowth of the, the beginning of AMLA rankings. You know, prior to 1980, 1985 was the first year that AMLA ranked. Uh, firms because prior to that it didn't have enough information from firms to be able to publish revenue and profit information. Why law firms agreed to give them that sort of information is beyond me. You know they would have fought. They, they, they would tell their clients in that circumstance, "Hey, wait, you're a private company. You don't have to disclose anything. Why are you going to put this out there?" But I guess you know law firms, law firms, the, the hubris. Sometimes the hubris just gets the best of you. And if you're if you're doing really well, you want to tell the world, I guess. But it. But it's but it you know it 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 um it starts a kind of uh you know a kind of arms race in terms of the rankings because everyone wants to be moving up on you know get into the AMLA 200 get into the the AMLA 100 move up their charts you know get revenue revenue per lawyer up get profit per lawyer up and it you know it, all of that drives I think uh, some of this uh, unfortunate behavior that you now see. Well, yeah, here's another thing, and this is not something that we're seeing in the U.S., but um, I believe it's Australia where non-lawyers are able to buy into law firms. And if that were to happen here, and if there were a board of directors that was concerned about efficiency and other things, um, you know, running things as a business, um, gosh, you know, there really might be... Then you, then you, then you, then you. At that point, you're right. It is Australia, and the UK has a similar law uh, going into effect uh, later this year, where it's going to allow private investment in in law firms as well. And if that happens here, uh, that's the death of the profession. Uh, that really is. That's the that that's the coup de gras. That's the that's all that's left in the complete corporatization of of the law as a business. As it's, opposed to it's scary. And, you know, a lot of the small firm people in the solos I talk to, um, you know, are just like, well, you know, when then all you need is Walmart to buy controlling stock of one of the big law firms. And now just as Walmart makes you change the packaging for the product to be on the shelf, Walmart will also change how you practice law and other. I mean, it just it is like you say, at the beginning of the end. And then there are other people I've talked to that said you could replace certain lawyers with software and i said you're nuts but this person right. said no if you had artificial intelligence you could actually have a computer program and software that a client could work with and input things and in, you know it's amazing right. um you know i mean it's for a, a profession that and a group of people that at, at the end of the year zeros out i mean at the end of the year it's zero you distribute everything and you start over i don't know how you know budgetary things and planning happen but you know if we have something like that privatization go into the fact here in the united states we are all in for a world of uh, interesting information. I would say that there are going to be probably more periodicals popping up just to deal with it. So, um, you know, right. a very big challenge to all of us. We're going to pause for our 
final break and then come back and talk about, in our last segment, uh, recent news about big firms in trouble, uh, continuing our trend of what we're talking about here. Um, but I want to let everybody know that uh, we have a consulting program here at ProServe PR Marketing. And from our solo practitioner friends to our larger law firm managers, we receive invitations from people to come in and present lunch and learning workshops for the benefit of transactional and litigation attorneys who want to learn more about how to use digital media and public relations and marketing opportunities to leverage your achievements and contributions so you can further your career, engage new clients and referrals. Now, again, this is not only for solo and small or mid-sized firm people. This is also for uh, someone who is partner-tracked at a larger law firm and wants to know how they can highlight some of their accomplishments to some of the other people in the firm, what things that they can do to write and get published, how it all works. And, and, And really, if you've never had media training or media relations things before, you can't practice law and write to media people. It's a different type of a whole different world. You know, the media world is a little more soft. It's a little more friendly. It's not as, um, you know, I've had uh, talked to clients before and they've said, I had, had a hard time dealing with media. Well, that's because they're, you know, submitting things like they're filing complaints in court. It's just not how the two worlds work. So, again, I really enjoy the opportunity to come into firms and do these workshops. Um, it's my, you know, my, my whole goal here is to uh, help change the way that uh, lawyers work with media and how media work with lawyers and how everyone understands each other. So that's really my whole skin in the game. Um, I also want to also remind people real quickly uh, on the ProServe PR uh, website, which is again ProServePR.com, there's a newsletter page. You can click on the newsletter page and sign up for our uh, middle of the month email, which contains marketing and PR articles, things that you can use, um, DIY type of things. And then also emails uh, at the end of the month that have uh, descriptions and short links to all of our monthly uh, radio programs. Again, we're doing themes, and um, as April was family law uh, month, May is litigation month, and uh, PR and image month is June. So as we continue doing these themes, it should bring some more interest to our, our shows and our broadcasts. Of course, when you do find all of our broadcasts and show links in your social networks, please be kind and click the share button because... Um, everyone finds things in each other's uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter feeds, and so many people have found our shows, again, from coast to coast and even uh, in other countries because someone shared it with someone else they were friends with. Um, you know, this is good information. A lot of people work really hard to put together good programming here, so please be kind and share. All right, back to our uh, program with Stephen Harper. We were talking uh, a little bit about some of the problems in um, you know, growing lawyer dissatisfaction. Uh, we talked a little bit about big law firm trends making things worse, and now we're going to talk about uh, you know, big law firms again and some of the trouble and things that have been happening. What's some of the unfortunate news, Stephen? Well, the most, the most, the one that's going that is, that is shaking the, at least the big law firm world for the last six weeks is happening in New York. It's the, it's the demise of Dewey and LaBeouf, which was uh, a, co- a combination of two firms that merged in 2007, uh, the venerable Dewey Ballantyne firm, uh, for whom the former governor of New York, Thomas Dewey, was a named partner back in the, in the 50s, and um, and LaBeouf Lamb, which was another prominent New York firm. And uh, it is, um, it is. It, well, let me. I can. I'll tell you what. I just got this notice because I get these things from the, from the these these media notices. The the Wall Street Journal just reported that one of the firm's lawyers described the scene inside Dewey's Manhattan headquarters as chaos, uh, adding that many lawyers have spent the morning backing up their emails and contacts and backing up their papers and personal effects. It's like the moment right before the movers came when everything's piled up and you can't get into your living room. He said. 
um, that that is that is a firm that has become a victim, the latest victim of some of the trends that we that we were talking about a minute ago in terms of what's happening with big firms generally, along with the drive to maximize short-term profits have been related drives to continue growing firm profits uh, to the sky. Um, and, and one way that, that people have thought they could do that is, is what I would call growth for growth, the sake of growth. Um, Dewey, Dewey and LaBeouf merged in October of 2007, and uh, last year, although they started a little earlier to a lesser degree, last year they went on a very aggressive uh, campaign to hire high-profile lateral partners. And um, in some cases, in many cases, they guaranteed these guys multi-years. Uh, I don't mean to say that it was just men, but probably women as well. Uh, multi-year guaranteed uh, seven-figure compensation packages of up to $6 million a year. Uh, well, all that is well and good, except when, when people don't perform in accordance with their expectations, guess what? You're stuck with the obligation um, and the... Uh, um, and the dollars aren't there to pay it. So uh, that's a firm that's just under, you know, it's, it, and it went to dramatic, uh, dramatic lengths even before it started or in preparation for that, for that lateral hiring binge. It did two other things. It, it slashed 60, the compensation of 66 of its 300 partners um, uh, down to where some of them were making less than associates, and uh, it also issued. Uh, bonds, which was a very rare thing for a law firm to do, of $125 million, the first of, first of which are due in April of next year. But the last report I saw on those uh, was that they were trading at about $0.60 cents on the dollar last Friday. Um, so there's a firm that has been, you know, just hoist with its own petard. I mean, it's just it's taken the the, ex, the extreme approach of, of growth and profits and aggressive lateral hiring and, and on and on and on um, to, to 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 such extremes that it ultimately is now leading to the to the to the demise of the firm. Howry had Howry had a similar went through a similar problem last year, and one of the things that happens is that the people who run big firms look at these situations and say, "Oh well, I'm different," you know, "I'm different." Um, there's, there are unique things about these other firms that I won't ever have to worry about. And then, you know, a year later, guess what? It's them. Um, wow. Really, really scary stuff. Well, so what happens that's a firm, then? That's a, firm, that's a firm of a 1,000 lawyers. I mean, just think about it. That's a 1,000 lawyers. They have offices, I think, in 20 offices around the world, 1,000 lawyers, 1,000 staff people. Um, and from at least from the reports that I'm reading uh, out of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they're all looking for jobs. You know, the the partners who've been able to you know land the big money, job, big money positions are are parachuting into other firms. You know, this sort of, this whole lateral hiring thing is going to continue to keep them afloat, at least for a while. But the dis, the, the, the disruptions and the social the social implications, social impact, societal impact, I should say, is is um, is pretty stunning. Pretty well, let's stunning. Con- let's consider how you know a firm of that size. When you have, uh, you know, you lose significant amount of people there, um, you know, how many people that can affect? I mean, these are really, I mean, when you talk about big business, let's talk about this. Um, yeah. These firms have large, a large-scale economic impact. Yep, yep. Well, they've got, you've got, you've got landlords that have enormous leases on the property. You've got uh, retired partners 
who may be affected because they may have unfunded pension benefits that they're not going to get anymore. Um, you have current lenders of all of all types. They, uh, I think, last one, sometime last week, they they told everyone in the firm that they could no longer use FedEx because because FedEx that account was no longer working. Um, over the weekend, somebody said somebody they sent another announcement saying that you know if you're trying to book catering or a rental car, use your personal credit card because the, the firm car, the firm accounts aren't aren't valid anymore for those purposes. So you have lenders. I mean, just think about what goes into to running a 2,000-person business. But even more importantly than that, this is a firm that had gross revenues of $800 million last year. Um, now, some of the people are going to wind up, hopefully most of the people, but I don't know, um, are going to wind up working in other places. They'll get picked up by other firms, uh, perhaps. Um, but, you know, the dislocations are going to be enormous. And they're younger younger associates. You know, we started, ironically enough, we started at the beginning talking about the law school bubble because we have too many lawyers and not enough jobs for them. Well, you're now taking a bunch of those young lawyers who thought they had jobs and you're, you're dumping them back into this, this horrible labor market. Um, you know, they, they cut, they, they closed, obviously they closed down their recruiting program. They didn't hire people. They're not hiring people who they previously had offered jobs to for, for permanent positions. They're all... And those are kids that are coming out of top law schools because that's where the New York firms recruit from, you know, the very best law schools, and they're now high and dry. Um, the dominoes, when they start to fall on a uh, on this sort of thing, are it, it'll it'll ripple for it'll ripple for a long time. And yeah, it'll affect a lot of people. It's and, and <laughs> oh, you know, it's just try. Imagine being and again, here's the problem. Let's say you are one of the lucky ones who gets to make a lateral move somewhere else. That's all fine and good, but let's say you're one of the people who, you know, just made partner and you just got the new house. Um, yep. You know, I, I mean, you know, let's, I yep. mean, I heard a story about someone here in Chicago who, you know, just bought a new home in Glencoe and beautiful home and like, you know, a nicer, newer lease, traded in the old Benz and got a newer one, maybe bumped up from an E class to an S class. Wonderful. Everything's yep. going well. And all of a sudden, oh no, what do I do? And the reality is, if you are making $160,000 a year at firm X and you're going to go to a mid sized firm where the most they can pay you is 90, why would they want to hire you? I've heard people say this before. I have no incentive to hire you to make less money than you made before. Why on earth would you want to work here? Right, right. It's an, it's. I mean, it is an enormous problem, and it's and it's it's made worse by the fact that the 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 whole, the whole dynamic of the law firm law firms like this, the prevailing model, it didn't reward things like mentoring. It didn't reward things like you know making sure young people had client connections and and relationships you know it didn't reward any of that stuff it encouraged people to build silos so that in the event of a lateral move that they might want to make if, you know top people they could make it because they say oh look here's my book of business see i'm worth 6 million dollars um and it, it's but it's there are a lot of people that are that are going to be profoundly affected by this i mean just imagine people you know you know people with young families starting out you know you thought you're moving you're cruising along you're maybe you're in your fourth or fifth year as an associate in one of these places you know making three or three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year you know you've got a nice house maybe you've got a couple little kids maybe you've got somebody in a you know some kid in a in, a, in an expensive nursery school or a preschool or even a, mm -hmm. you know, a private kindergarten i mean it's it is it's um it's 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 tragic. It really is. It's tragic and it's sad. And and you know all you can do really to avoid that situation is is try not to live, you know, the lifestyle that you think you you 
you can accomplish based on whatever you're making this year because maybe it's a little less permanent than you thought. Yeah, and it's just it's you know a reality check for a lot of people, and you know it's. I think that um, you know nowadays after you know anyone who's lived through this you know from 2007 to 2008 and forward, you know I don't think people will be as caught by surprise in the future. Or at least I hope not. But you know history is cyclical and bad deeds always come back around. Um, tell right. us in the meantime we're we're gonna have to say goodbye. But test, but first I want you to um, uh, tell us how people can get a hold of you. But first tell us a little bit uh, real briefly about your blog, The Belly of the Beast. Yeah, The Belly of the Beast is. Um uh, is the best way to reach me. Actually, there's a there, you, there's a link you can go through, and if people want to send me a message, you, you can email. You can send an email to me, and and it goes uh, right through the link um, to me. Uh, and um, it's uh, I, I typically I post uh, weekly, and usually the American Lawyer, the Amla Daily, um, uh, American Lawyer picks it up and also runs it on Fridays. Uh, my blog post, uh, and uh, um, it's. Um, you know, it's my it's my effort to try to shine a little light in some in some dark corners of the profession that either people aren't necessarily uh, familiar with, or or maybe lawyers don't want to talk about that much. The people in the best position to to shine the light don't want to do it. So, yeah, um, it's it's all about to me. It's all about the next generation. And, and your and your quote your, your quotation is exactly right. It was Marx who said, uh, "People who don't you you relive history first as if you you relive history." Uh, first is tragedy, and then it's farce. Yep. So there you go. Wonderful. All right. Well, Stephen Harper, thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time.